Messiah. I know times are pretty different. We don't use a pen and paper, but we have 2,000 billion different ways. I know that things have really changed. This might feel strange. Hey there, Messiah. I think right now you should know that I am on my way to work, but I can text you from my phone, so don't you fear. I'm only driving in first gear. Can you hear? And oh, God just texted me. God just texted me, and oh, arrow number three, oh, arrow number three, he really does love me, OMG, he really does love me. Well, I feel like our creative team just outdid themselves this week with that video. Jonathan Edwards and Chris Baker and some of the other guys at our church that put that together. Um, by the way, if you are old and out of it, like, uh, like me, by the way, I had a birthday, another birthday this week, turned 27 um, again for the ninth time in a row. Uh, yeah, no, actually, I'm 36, and I just, 36 feels old, I'm not going to lie to you. I asked my wife, I'm like, you know, do I look 36? And she's like, no. But you used to look 36, and now, <laughs> well, anyway, if you're old, like me, uh, OMG is the text message shorthand for Oh My God, um, and it's making fun of the fact that we have created a world where there is a lot of communication that is very wide and very shallow. Most of our communication with each other is now done by our thumbs. A uh, magazine that I read uh, said, we are more connected now than ever, but but we are more, excuse me, we are more connected, but know people less than ever. So we live in a world where communication is wide and shallow, but in this new series, we're going to take a look at some prayers in the Bible that were deep and personal. I know that this applies to you, because let's be honest, most of you stink at praying, right? I mean, can we agree on that together? If you just want to really be upfront and honest, you got a lot of things down, you happy with a lot of things in your life, but I've never met somebody, and well, actually, I'll take that back. I've met very, met very few people who, uh, who felt like that this part of their life was what it should be. We text message, and we blog, and we Twitter other people far more than we, than we pray. Before we get into it, uh, I want to say that in one sense, I feel like this particular series for our church could not come at a better time. Uh, you see, in March, we went through our Believe Project. Uh, if you weren't around for that, uh, that was several weeks where I put in front of our people here the vision of, uh, of where we were going, and uh, you all committed nearly $5 million to help us build some new facilities to reach people. Our purpose, uh, as I explained ad nauseum during that time, is not just to build buildings. Buildings for us uh, at the Summit Church are simply tools to reach people. That's why you can look around, uh, pretty much at every one of your campuses, uh, look around, and uh, you can see that we don't spend that much on buildings. Uh, ghetto is one of our values, is how I, you know, we, we explain that. Um, buildings for us are just tools to reach people. 
Uh, if what you are looking for in a church is a nice building, then uh, yeah, I know that's really not us. Um, I, just, I just don't believe it would be honoring to God for me to spend my life trying to build a brick and mortar monument for a God who says he dwells not in temples made with hands. So like I told you during that time, you know, our goal is not to build a monument, but to birth a movement. And we want to reach people. And we know that some buildings are necessary to do that, but the purpose is reaching people. And by the way, if you were here last week, that happened. Uh, last week, we baptized 121 people. Um, yeah, it's awesome. Some incredible stories. There were included atheists who talked about coming to Christ over the last year. Um, one girl who uh, here in Durham, uh, she was here in Durham at a sexual abuse facility. Uh, she had come to, 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 to get some, uh, just some, some counseling that she needed, and she told the people when she got here, she said, I feel like God's going to have to be a part of this process. And the people at the treatment facility, which is not a Christian facility, but the people at the treatment facility said, oh, well, they need to go to the Summit Church. And so she's been here the last several weeks, and she uh, got baptized this past Sunday. It included a, um, a 70-year-old man who is the husband of somebody that goes here to our church who's been praying for him for 40 years. Um, got in the water, got in the water and said, I've been rejecting Christ for 40 years. And, uh, and this, is, this was, today was his day. God's let us reach people, all right? So we know that we've got to keep going forward. And we have just leased another space right here um, at the Briar Creek campus, is what I mean by here. And we're going to transform, transform and hopefully ready by the fall um, to help us reach more people um, at this place on Sunday morning. And we're going to uh, get to work right down the road on our more permanent facility. And we have some other things to do with our other campuses. Um, but I'm going to be honest with you guys. Uh, we just don't have the funds to do all that we need to do. Our church is extremely generous, but it's just a lot of things out there that we feel like are, are ahead of us. And we need God to provide for us miraculously. And that's why, that's why I'm glad that we're talking about prayer, because I really feel like we have done what we can do, and now we need what God can do, all right? And so when we plan, we get what we can do, and we pray, we get what God can do. Also, I, I, I want to mention, um, sort of sadly, this is the last week for many of our college students to be with us, sort of always a sad week around here. In fact, I know that a lot of them are already uh, not here this morning because they skipped church to study for their exams which I pray in Jesus' name that you would, that God would curse you and you would fail your exams because you did not. No, no, I'm kidding. Um, I'm kidding. I, no, we will miss you guys uh, because you guys are so much um, a part of who we are. I didn't feel the same without you. Uh, we, you're, just, you're, you're a part of the core of who we are as a church. In fact, one of the things that I love about you guys in college is that you demonstrate what we're going to talk about today. Um, last year, uh, last year, early last year, I preached um, a, a message on asking audacious prayer requests, uh, which a group of our students decided that they would apply on their campus at UNC. And so working with a, um, a ministry called Campus Crusade on that campus, they set up these things all around their campus called kvetching boards. Um, I, I blogged about this. If you uh, check one of the three people that checked my blog, you, you may have seen that. Um, these kvetching boards where they just put up these boards around campus and said, what's wrong with Christianity? And these boards then filled up with dozens upon dozens of comments. Then they invited everybody to come to a forum where I would address all those questions. Uh, yeah, I was a little intimidated because the questions ranged from how do I know there's a God to I think Jesus is cool, but Paul was kind of a jerk. Uh, and that's what I had to come in and I you know, had to address. Um, the attendance for this kind of event was huge. I never got an exact count, 
uh, but it looked to me like a solid 250 or 300 packed into this room. Uh, now I know you all hear that and you think, lots of pastors, there's probably like 20 or 30 people there. Uh, no, 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 there, there really was that many. Um, and, but all that happened because these students believed what I'm going to talk about to you this morning, okay? So that's why, uh, that's why it just all sort of comes together in this day. And by the way, I, I put this on my blog. If you saw that, this also reminded me of why I don't like college students, um, this event, because the event organizer um, was, I was talking with her before the, um, before the uh, you might have seen this on the blog. Um, I was talking with her before the event, and um, I found out she had grown up as a missionary in Russia, uh, or near Russia, and I said, um, I said, oh, uh, well, you know, it's great because I just got done reading the Brothers Karamazov, so I sort of consider myself an expert on Russian culture now. Um, if you'd like to ask any questions, I could clear whatever up for you. And she, you know, she politely laughed, which people do for me a lot. And uh, then and she, said, um, she said, well, what did you think of the book? And it wasn't a fabulous book. And I was like, I was like, well, I'm going to be honest with you. I don't read shallow stuff, but I don't know how many of you have read that book. But it, I mean, it was a beast. 980 pages, little teeny tiny writing, sentences with like a thousand words in them. Plus, the Russian people have just strange patterns of thought. No offense if you're Russian, but maybe I'm just, we're just not smart enough to keep up with you guys. But um, it's, it was like, it was dense. I was like, there were some awesome passages in it. But then just this stream of stuff, and I was like, I just really couldn't get through it. And so this girl looks back at me and goes, well, it's a lot better when you read it in Russian. And I was like, oh, excuse me. I'm sorry, all right? So that's why I don't like them. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, I won't tell you who, what her initials were, but her name was Ashley Peterson, and I think she's here this morning. Um, anyway, anyway, Genesis 18, if you have your Bible, yeah, open all of our campuses. I welcome you and ask you to open up your Bible there. Uh, Genesis chapter 18, here is the story uh, that is going on in Genesis 18, because we won't read the whole thing. Genesis 18, you got three men, all right, three men that have come down to talk with Abraham. And it becomes apparent that there are two purposes for their visit. All right, first they want to announce to Sarah, Abraham's wife, that she is pregnant. And they have come to destroy two very wicked cities, Sodom and, and Gomorrah. Of these, three, of these three men, you will find out that one of them turns out to be God himself in human guise. All right, that's a little detail in there. Now, let's begin reading in verse 16. Let me walk you through this. Then the men set out from, from there. Where's there? Sarah, having just told her she's pregnant as a 90-year-old woman. And they looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham went with them to set them on their way. He has no idea what they're about to do. Then the Lord said, okay, one of these three men, the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed in him? For I have chosen chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Verse 20, then the Lord said to Abraham, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. Verse 22, so the men turned from there and went toward Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham, watch this, approached and said, it's a very important word, I'll show you why in a minute. Approached and said, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Would you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? 
Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fares the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? That's an extremely important verse. I love that verse. Uh, We'll come back to it too. Verse 26. And the Lord said, yeah, if I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I'll spare the whole city for their sake. Now, I love this next part because Abraham starts haggling with God like he's in the market, you know, disputing the price of bananas. Watch this. Abraham answered and said, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Who am I but, but dust and ashes? Suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking. Will the Will that you destroy this whole city for lack of five? And God said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Verse 29, again, he spoke to him and said, suppose 40 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, oh, let the Lord not be angry, and I will speak once more. Suppose 30 are found there. And he answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 20, I will not do it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again but this once. Suppose 10 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way, and when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. This is truly a weird passage of Scripture. Abraham is like, it's like a reverse auctioneer. He's like, hey, God, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 40, 40, do I see 40, 30, 30, 30, 30 20? No, smoke the city. I mean, it's, it's just kind of what, what's going on here? And by the way, when you look at it, Abraham turns out to be a pretty shrewd negotiator. Doesn't he working his way down? I, I remember I heard of the college student who asked his dad for $50, and his dad's like, $40? What in the world are you going to do with $20? Uh, you know, just slowly working, <laughs> working that system down. This is probably, this is probably one of the clearest places in Scripture that teaches us about prayer. But first, before I get into that, let me deal with something that I know some of you probably can't get over to even hear the rest of the message, and that is you're going to get caught up on the whole idea of God destroying a city. And you're like, well, this is the God I don't like, right? I've heard about this God. I thought God, you know, I thought that was the God that we grew up from in the New Testament. Old Testament, that's when God was cranky, uh, God in his junior high years, I'm really glad that God, you know, grew up, reformed himself in the New Testament. He got saved in the New Testament and became gentle Jesus. Um, so I, I, don't, yeah, I, don't, I don't get this. Well, let me show you something that you may not have seen. I know this won't answer all the questions, but, but watch this. Verse 20, God, in explaining what he's going to do, says, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, cry out is a very technical Hebrew term. And it means a cry that is the result coming from somebody who has suffered violent injustice or oppression. Who is crying out from Sodom? It is the poor that are crying out from Sodom because they have been oppressed. Ezekiel 16, 49, later in the Old Testament, clears this up. Ezekiel said, behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride. They had excess of food. They had prosperous ease. And they did not aid the poor and needy. God's anger is at the way Sodom has harmed his creation and how they have harmed each other. You see, when you love someone, you hate the things that destroy it. If you love someone, you hate the cancer that ravages their body. And you are willing to see them even undergo violent chemotherapy to remove it. 
God loved the little girl in Sodom who had been sexually abused. God loved the little boy in Sodom who had been molested. God cared about the guy in Sodom who had been cheated out of his job and for the wife who had been scorned for a younger woman. Right? God's love, like all true love, includes wrath. Being wrath and love are not opposite. They're not. Apathy is the opposite of love. Right? When you love something, you care about the things that destroy what he loves. You're like, okay, well, that may deal with this much of the problem. I got a lot more questions about that. There's a phrase I want you to see, right? Because I don't have, I, I can't get into answering this whole question this, this morning. Verse 25, that, that phrase I pointed out, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? I know that there are many things in Scripture, not just for you, but for me as well, that seem odd to us. And the reason for that is because we don't see clearly now. Right? We don't see from God's perspective. The Bible teaches us consistently that the judge of all the earth will do what's right. And sometimes if we can't understand why God does what he does, it's because we don't understand some things yet. But when you see things the way that God sees them, you will see that what God do, did is just. You will see that God is more merciful than any of us really would ever be. An analogy I use, and I've used it here before, but it helps me think of it, is back from when I, I took my first geometry class in, in high school. Um, if you remember geometry, I actually really enjoyed it, but the first few weeks of it were pretty rough because it was unlike any other math that, that we'd ever done, right? It, in, in geometry, instead of giving you the question, you know, they give you the answer, right? It's called a proof. They give you the answer, and you've got to come home and work up the steps to get to the proof. Did any, anybody remember this, right? Anybody take geometry five or six times, and you never got this? All right, so they give you the answer, and you go and work out the proof. Well, I remember when the first few times it happened, the teacher would give us the answer, and I'd go home, and I'd spend an hour working on it, and I would be like, there's no way to get to that from, from just what you've got. And I would be convinced that she had given me the wrong answer. Right? So I would go into class the next day, and you know my personality, often wrong, never in doubt. And so I would say to her, I would say to her, you totally missed it, right? There's no way to get this. And she would be like, oh, you forgot the transitive property of equality. Like, oh, the transitive property of equality. How could I forget the transitive property of equality? So, you know, and, and I'd learn, and she'd show me how it worked out. Well, after this happened several times, I finally started to trust her that she was giving me the correct answer. And I would go on and I would keep working at it until I found all the steps to get to that resolution. In some ways, what God has done for us is he's given us the bottom line, and that is that he is just and merciful. And sometimes we can't figure out the steps to get there, and I know that's difficult. God invites us to learn and to delve deeper, but realize that the last thing you want to do is throw up the towel and say, God, you're wrong. Because, y'all, listen, if you, don't, if you don't know all the rules, you've got no right playing referee. And you will find that when you walk with God and you get to the end, you will find that his answers that he gave were correct. And I would invite you just to, to be a part of that process and to join the ranks of us who don't understand everything. All right? All right, the end of that little, little parenthesis there. As these guys are walking away, as these guys are walking away, God says to himself, but loud enough for Abraham to hear, this is verse 17, shouldn't we tell Abraham what we're about to do? Now, this is kind of like when we say to a friend, I don't really know if I should tell you this, right? Now, at that point, right, when you say that, you've already committed to tell them, right? I mean, you ever have a friend do that and not actually tell you, and you just want to beat the, the crud out of them? You can't say that and not tell me. By saying that, you're showing, I want to tell you. That's what God's doing. He's like, hey, shouldn't we tell Abraham, you know, right here? And uh, so God begins to tell Abraham. He takes Abraham aside and tells him what he's about to do. Here's the point. God is treating Abraham like a friend, He's my friend. I'm going to show him what I'm about to do. Well, when Abraham hears what God is going to do, he begs God not to. 
He begins to pray for the city of Sodom, not for himself, but for the city. Here's what is significant about that. These were not good people, and they had not been good to Abraham. Go back and read Genesis. You'll see that these people had treated Abraham very badly, attacking him, stealing his stuff. Yet Abraham is praying for them. I used to think that what Abraham was doing here was, was backhandedly trying to save his cousin Lot. Right? Because according to the story, his cousin Lot lived in Sodom. You know, so I thought what Abraham was doing was he was thinking, if I could get God to spare the city, then I can get Lot out. Right? But if so, if that's what Abraham's motive is, why didn't Abraham just ask that? Why did he say, God, don't destroy Lot, get him out, and then cover those disgusting Cretans with the heavenly road tar? Right? Why didn't he say that? It would be a whole lot easier. It would have been much less of a request. It would have been easier than what God was asking, Abraham was asking God to do. No, you see, Abraham is actually praying for the city of Sodom, right? The city that had been so unkind to him. He is being the city's priests. He is standing before God on Sodom's behalf, praying for their good even when they deserve judgment. He even does so by taking his own life into his hands, right? That's why you see all those things where he's like, God, don't be angry. Don't be mad. I'm just going to push it one more time. He's risking his life to pray for them. He's doing what God, you see, had chosen Abraham to do. Did you see verse 18? I have chosen him that he would be a blessing to all nations. He is blessing the city of Sodom by interceding for them on their behalf. Now, what happens next in the haggling that goes back and forth is not just a bizarre encounter. It is actually a deep theological lesson. Right, you are about to learn something very important about God. Watch this. All right, verse 23 says that Abraham approached God. In English, saying that he approached God seems redundant because, according to verse 22, he was already standing right in front of God. He didn't need to come closer. You know, it's like he's three feet away, and now he's one feet away, one foot away. Now, that, that, that's not what he's trying to say. But see, the word approach in Hebrew is a very technical word that means approach, as in you approach the bench in a court of law. Abraham is appealing to the justice of God. And again, watch, you're about to learn something very important about God. Abraham says, verse 23, Won't you, God, do what's right? For the sake of 50 righteous, would you not spare the city? God, I know you hate injustice, but do you love righteousness so much? And aren't you so merciful that for the sake of the 50 righteous, wouldn't you spare this whole city? He knows that God is just. He knows God hates injustice. But he also knows that God loves righteousness. He knows that God loves people. And so he says, for the sake of the righteous, God, won't you spare the wicked? And the answer is, yes. God does hate injustice. But he loves righteousness more. And he loves people. And he loves to forgive. And for the sake of 50 righteous, he would certainly spare thousands of wicked people in the city. So Abraham begins to work his way down, 45, 40, 30, 20, 10. Each time, God's saying, yes, I will spare the city for 40. Yes, I will spare the city for 30. Yes, I will spare the city for 20, for 10. But then, you got to think, okay? But then all of a sudden, Abraham just stops. The story never really resolves. Don't you see that as odd? Abraham's on a roll. 
He's bargained God down from 50 to 10. Why didn't he keep going down to one? You know, we did a thing, yard sale yesterday. First one we've ever done in our house in seven years. I hate yard sales. I hate doing them. I hate going to them. Um, but uh, so anyway, I mean, no offense if that's your, your, your deal. But, um, but, you know, at the end of the day, I was just like, take it. Take it. I don't want it. I, I'm more excited about getting rid of this stuff than I am getting money for it. You know, and so, I mean, God, obviously he's on a roll. Why didn't he just keep going? Why don't you keep going down and be like, hey, God, why not just for one, maybe, you know? But he just stops. The story never resolves. You're waiting on a climatic moment that never comes. It's like, you know, it's like you play seven notes of a, of a piano scale, and then all of a sudden you don't hit the last one. Why? Why doesn't Abraham keep going? Right? I mean, that's the question that you're supposed to be asking. Here's why. Evidently, Abraham recognizes that there's not even one in the city who is righteous or at least righteous enough for God to spare the city. And so it ends, and God destroys the city. He saves Abraham's cousin Lot, because he's not as wicked as everybody else, but God destroys the city. Do you see? This story leaves a question that the New Testament will answer. Abraham could not find that one righteous for whom God could forgive the whole city. Jesus was that one that Abraham could not find. Jesus was the one righteous for whom God will forgive the wickedness of the wicked. The whole story is really there about Jesus. You see, Abraham risked his life to plead for the unrighteous. Jesus actually gave his life to plead for the unrighteous. Abraham pled for the people of Sodom, people who had threatened to take his life. Jesus pled for people who actually did take his life. Because God loves righteousness so much, And because Jesus was so righteous, for the sake of Jesus, God would gladly forgive the sins of the many. You see, Isaiah 53 is the great chapter in the Old Testament where 750 years before Jesus' birth, the prophet Isaiah foretells in detail the horrors of the cross. After describing the bloody cross, Isaiah says of Jesus in verse 11, God will see the suffering of his soul and be satisfied. Jesus' righteousness was so great and his sacrifice was so pleasing and so acceptable to God and God is so willing to forgive that on Jesus' behalf, God forgives all of Sodom, which in Scripture does not represent all the homosexuals. Sodom represents all of us. See, I mean, that's what we call Sodomite. We are usually referring to a homosexual, but a better theological interpretation of Sodom is you and me. It is on Jesus' behalf and for his sake, God forgives Sodom if we would simply believe on him. I saw this, you know, different cultures see things different way. When I was a, a missionary over in Southeast Asia in a Muslim culture, um, it was everywhere, everywhere, everybody I lived with was Muslim over there. And, um, they, you know, they, they would air um, on CNN over there, the CNN Asia would air the, the Hajj, which is where they all traveled in Mecca. And there's one particular, you know, moment in Mecca Um, about a million different Muslims who have made that pilgrimage will circle that huge black rock, slowly getting closer and closer, hoping they'll be able to touch it. And the whole time they're chanting, the whole thing lasts for several hours. And I'm watching it, and I'm watching it on TV with several of my friends, and I ask them, I'm like, what are they doing? Why are they chanting? What are they saying? And the guy turns to me and explains this. He said, he said, those are the best Muslims in the world because they're the ones who made the pilgrimage. He said, and there they are, circling that black rock called the Kaaba. And they're circling, and they're all praying in unison for the forgiveness of their sins. 
we figure that out of a million Muslims there, that there has to be at least one who is worthy enough for God to hear his prayer. And on that one's behalf, God will forgive every person present all their sins. And I'm sitting there listening to him, and I'm like, I know the guy that you're looking for. He's just not circling a black rock in the desert. Right? It is Jesus Christ who is seated at the right hand of God. Do you understand that if you just believe on him, look to him, God hates your sin, and he must punish your injustice, but he loves you. And because of Jesus Christ's righteousness on your behalf, he would love to forgive and restore you. All right? I said all that to say this. I would suggest to you that this story is not here just to teach us about Jesus. And maybe it's primary purpose. But it's also teach us, here to teach us how to pray. How to pray like Jesus. How to pray for Sodom. Let me give you, all right, in the last 13 or so minutes that remain for us this morning. Let me give you the four, what I see as rather obvious things that this story teaches you about how you should pray for your city. Okay, watch. Number one, you should ask in Jesus' name. You should ask in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name is not something we simply put on the end of our prayer to signify to God that we're about to be done. Right? I mean, that's kind of how people use it. You just, you come to the end, you better say in Jesus' name so God knows he can quit paying attention in a minute. Right? I mean, you ever, you ever done the thing where you're leaving a message, this ever happened, all of a sudden you're at the end of your message, you end it in Jesus' name like it's like you suddenly forget your brain? That, ha- that happens to me. I don't know, maybe because I'm a pastor, but I'll be saying, in Je- what am I saying? It's not just an end to a, a closing. It's in Jesus' name is something that we put on the end of prayer because we realize that when we are praying, we are asking God to do something because of what Jesus has done. We know that what Jesus has done is so pleasing to God that we ask on Jesus' basis, won't you do this, Jesus? Isaiah 53, 11 again. God will see the suffering of his soul and be satisfied. So I'm asking in Jesus' name because God, he's done everything necessary to earn what I'm asking for. Psalm 2, 8 is a psalm that is written where the father is speaking to the son. And he says, ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. My inheritance, what's coming to me, ask of me, the father says to the son. So when I ask in Jesus' name for the nations or my city or my family or my community, I'm saying, God, simply give to Jesus what is coming to him. When we pray, we're asking for what Jesus has earned. Do you remember years, several years ago when the, the shootings happened at Columbine High School and those two gunmen came in and killed all those people? I was actually overseas when that happened. Um, I, I was living there. And when I was overseas, I remember hearing and watching the story unfold and how heartbreaking it was. And then that story came out about that girl, that high school girl named Cassie Bernal. Do you remember her story? How she had, you know, had confessed that she believed in God and because of that she was shot um, dead on the spot by one of these gunmen. And I, I remember hearing over there that they were getting ready to do a massive memorial service. And they brought in some, some pretty famous Christian speakers and Christian bands and they were going to do this. And the whole nation was watching. And I remember over in Indonesia, getting down on my knees and saying, God, God, would you please, would you please send just a wave of salvation through our nation, through the city there in, in Colorado, would you do something? And I said, God, Cassie Bernal has paid the price. Right? I mean, she's the one that suffered and she, she died. So for her sake, won't you pour out your power? 
because of what she did. It was one of those times where I just, it was like I, I heard God speaking to me, as it wasn't audibly. It was like God, the Holy Spirit, said, yes, I'm very pleased with the sacrifice she made, but there's somebody else that I'm even more pleased with. And I don't want you praying in her name, I want you praying in his. Because he paid the ultimate price and sacrifice so that in his name, he's already purchased all the people. He's already died to save the people that you're asking for. So ask in his name. So when you pray, you ought to think, what does Jesus want for this person? Jesus died in pursuit of some end in that person's life. When you pray, you're saying, God, I'm going to ask you for what Jesus purchased. When I pray for our city, when I pray for our girls, when I pray for the campuses that we serve on, I say, Lord, Jesus died so that he could save this city. I'm asking you to give it to him. In some of the missionary biographies I read, there was a phrase they used to use a few hundred years ago about what they were praying for, and they would say this phrase, and it always stuck with me. They would say, may the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. May the lamb that was slain, may he receive what he died to purchase. When we pray, we pray in Jesus' name because Jesus was the one for whom God would save the city. Right, here's number two. We ask for the city. Number two, you ask for the city. We are put here as priests in our city just like Abraham. That's what I tell our mission teams when they go. I'm like, you're there to ask God for the city. You are there put there by God in this place, many places where there are no other witnesses to Christ, and you become that place's priest. And I mean you wear a white collar. I just mean you represent God to the people and the people to God. And again, I've, I, I, I've explained some of this before, but when I served, when I went back to visit one of our teams over in Southeast Asia, it's the part of Southeast Asia where the tsunami came through and killed hundreds of thousands of people over there. And I stood, because I had lived in that same spot I lived in the same place where that tsunami came through, and I stood there on the shore, and you could look around, and you could see where that 70-foot-high wave had come in and destroyed 100,000 people. It used to be one of those beautiful beaches that I'd ever been to, now just completely trashed because of this thing. And I remember standing on that shore, and I remember getting angry at God and saying, God, you could have spoken a word, and you could have sent a wave of salvation into these people, but instead you sent a wave of destruction. God, why? God didn't answer, I mean, I, I can't tell you why, but I know that on that shore, God, again, spoke to my heart and said, I will and I plan to. And that's why your people are here, because they are here believing, believing on behalf of these people, and by believing in Jesus' name, you are going to release my power in this area. We put in, or are put in places to be the priests for that place. I and every man in this room, all right, who is a father or a husband, have been placed as the priest for our family. And so sometimes after my girls are asleep, they go down and I get on my knees beside their bed and I pray, God, for Jesus' sake, will you save my family? I look around at some of you guys this morning. I'm not trying to come down to you, but I'm just looking at you and I'm like, where are the priests for your family? When's the last time you prayed for your children? When's the last time that you stood in the place and said, God, I know I'm here because I'm here to represent them, and I'm praying that you would do something in them. You are the priest for your neighborhood, your dorm, your workplace. I'm not saying you walk around and give out a card that says J.D. Greer, resident priest. 
I mean, that'd be weird, all right? This would mean that you recognize that you're there, placed by God, to pray and intercede on, on their behalf. One of our members, I saw them do this the other day. I thought this was great. I went to have lunch at, at their workplace. Work at actually a very prestigious place. I walked in, big old office. He welcomed me, and he said, uh, he said hi, welcome to my office. And then he, he had this little phrase at the end. That we used to say this a lot. We used to say we we're trying to make it hard to go to hell from, from, from Raleigh-Durham. We hadn't said that a lot recently. But he said, welcome to my office in downtown Durham, where I am making it hard to go to hell from, and he put the name of, of his office. He, see, he recognized that he was the priest for that office, and he's there to pray. He's there to represent, represent, represent people to God. Number three, we are to ask big. Ask big. Ask in Jesus' name. Ask for the city. Number three, ask big. This story, you see, shows you God's compassion. That's what's humorous about this. God wants to save. He invites us in. He shows us what we're doing, so we'll ask. He even lets us bargain with him. So ask for big things. Ask for big things. Most of us, we ask for things that are way too small. What do you believe God wants to do in the life of one of your children? Ask for that. What do you believe what God wants to do in your marriage? On your campus, ask for that. What one thing, if you had unlimited, I mean, say it like this. You may want to jot this down. What one thing, if you had unlimited power and resources, what one thing would you want to see happen for God's glory? Then ask for it. Right? Ask for it because you're talking to somebody who does have unlimited power and resources, whose arm is not shortened that it cannot save, and whose ear is not heavy that it cannot hear. The more I study Scripture, the more I find that what limits God's work on the earth is not his willingness and certainly not his power. It is our unbelief. As I told you through this belief process, Matthew 13, 58, many mighty works Jesus did not in Capernaum because... Not because he was unwilling and not because he was lazy or tired, but because of their unbelief. Faith unlocks the power for the mission of God. Go and believe. So ask. And ask big. You know, John Newton, who wrote um, Amazing Grace, that we all know, wrote another hymn that nobody knows. We never sing it. And it's not a criticism. I'm just saying it's one of those old cranky tunes that we can't really sing. But in, there, in that hymn, he says this, Thou art coming to a king. So with thee large petitions bring, for his grace and power are such that none can ever ask too much. I think that's pretty good. Doesn't hit amazing grace, but it's close, right? There's two things you see that cause big prayers, and that is feeling with God's heart or seeing with God's eyes. I know some of you feel overwhelmed right now with something. There's no way out of a situation. You feel like you can't do anything, but you can. See, you can pray. And God can open up venues of life and power that were hitherto unknown. Here's number four. Ask persistently. Ask persistently. That's the whole haggling thing. That God wants Abraham to bargain with him. This whole thing reminds me of one of my favorite parables in Scripture, scripture because it's just so bizarre. Yeah, I feel like Jesus and the Bible writers, they really like the bizarre. So they tell bizarre stories. And some of you don't read it because you're used to reading the Bible in Sunday school mode, and it goes right over the top of your head. Not because you're not smart enough, just because you're too religious, okay? When Jesus told this story, it was supposed to be like, what is he talking about? All right, Jesus tells this story where, um, and I, because it's my favorite, I'm sure I've shared it like 10 times. Right, he tells this story where he's talking about prayer, and he says, okay, he says, prayer's like this. Imagine you got this old, old woman, okay, who's a widow, and she's annoying, and nobody likes her, okay? 
and, and she comes to this judge because she needs something from the judge. And she comes to the judge and says, judge, give me this. Well, the judge, he's just a crook. I mean, he's, he, he's dishonest. If you can't do anything for him, he's not going to do anything from you. He doesn't like this woman. Nobody likes her, but especially not him. But she comes back day by day by day by day by day, and he's like, oh, please shut up. And then at the end of Jesus' parable, he says, this woman has annoyed this judge so badly that this unjust, corrupt judge gives her what she wants simply because she won't shut up about it. God is like that with you. <laughs> if I'd have told that, you'd have thrown stones at me for being sacrilegious, right? And Jesus' point is not that God is an uncaring judge. His point is if an uncaring judge would give you the answer to your request if you ask persistently, how much more your heavenly, heavenly Father? Your heavenly Father is not an unjust judge. Your heavenly Father is tender. He cares towards you. Some things he has ordained just through you continuing to ask. So keep asking and keep thinking of him as your father. My kids ask me stuff from dawn till dusk. Daddy, can I do this? Daddy, can I do that? And sometimes I got to say no because they don't know what they're asking for. You know, my six-year-old will we'll, we'll, we'll have my three-year-old and walk on the door going, Dad, we're going to drive around the block. What block? Well, the one that runs all the way around our neighborhood. We're going to go on the main road because that's just what we do. And I'm like, no, you can't. I love you too much to let you do that. God does that with us sometimes. Sometimes he says no. And sometimes I say no to my kids, but I love to say yes. I love when they say, Daddy, can we go to McDonald's? And I say, yes. <laughs> I love it when they, when they, after we've gone to bed, we'll say, Daddy, can we go to Chili's and get a hot lava cake? Don't tell your mother, but yes. <laughs> yes. I love to say yes. And Jesus says, if you're like that with your kids, why would your heavenly father be any different towards you? He loves to say yes. You know what he's like. You've seen what he is with Jesus. So ask persistently. Sometimes we quit praying. We give up. And we quit praying right at the exact time, I think, when we had we pushed on through, God would have answered our prayer. All right? That's it. Those are my four things I wanted to leave with you. Ask in Jesus' name. Ask for the city. Ask big. And ask persistently. One of my pet peeves is when you talk a lot about prayer and you don't do it. Right? It's a great sermon on prayer. Let's go home and think about that. This morning, we're going to spend some time praying. And I'm going to ask, just a minute, our campus pastors at all of our campuses, if they would come up. And they come up and they lead us in a, in a time of prayer. While they're coming and they're getting ready, I want to do one more thing this morning. That is, I'd like to challenge you for the next 21 days that we're going to be in this series, I want to challenge you to pray for 10 minutes every day, at least 10 minutes. I know a lot of you pray a lot longer than that, but we got to start somewhere, right? And I know many of you don't pray at all, so this is a place to start. 10 minutes every day. For some of you, I know it's going to be a discipline. You're going to have to make yourself do it, and when you do it, you're going to have to force your mind to, to stay on task. Your mind's going to wander, and it's going to feel useless, but just do it 10 minutes. You're like, well, what do I pray about? Well, just pray about the things I teach you for the next three weeks. And if you do it, I promise you that, the, that at the end of 21 days, you're going to be praying longer than those 10 minutes, not by discipline, but you're going to be praying because of desire. All right, so that's your homework, because I want you, if you don't do it, just pray 10 minutes a day. All right, I'm going to turn it over at all of our campuses, or our campus pastors are going to come, and they're going to, he's going to lead us in a time of prayer.